Welcome back to Talking PFAS Podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. If you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to have a binge as the content, of course, is still very relevant today. As attention, regulation and litigation regarding PFAS chemicals continues to accelerate. In early May, I had the privilege of attending one of the days of training at the CRC CARES 4th Risk to Remediation Masterclass. This course was held from the 1st to the 5th of May 2023 at Newcastle. Now this was a five-day course that provided participants with the cutting-edge skills to manage and remediate contaminated sites in Australia and globally. This was not a course that was solely dedicated to PFAS remediation, but remediation in general, including PFAS. This course was developed in response to the critical need to build capacity to address the growing global contamination crisis. While technical lessons learned through the study of past projects, an advantage of this course was the semi-structured discussions, problem solving and personal interactions that allowed participants to consider the many facets of modern contaminant site assessment and remedial design. The course also discussed aspects of sustainable low-impact remediation approaches, climate change considerations, policy and regulatory matters and economic considerations, all within the context of gaining and maintaining a social licence to operate. And thanks to CRC Care, I had the privilege of attending on day five. And then following the conclusion of the event, I was able to interview Paul Nathaniel from the UK and also Scott Warner from California, who were providing the training on that day. There were 75 delegates present and the Masterclass 2023 was attended by delegates from Australia and from overseas. The delegates were from a varied background and experience. They were from Department of Defence, regulators for EPA Victoria and Tasmania, federal government, consultants and practitioners, academia, scientists, researchers and early career professionals. And the overseas delegates were from Malaysia and South Africa. Now to my discussion with Paul Nathaniel from the UK and Scott Warner from California. Hi, Scott Warner. Welcome to Talking PFAS podcast. Lovely to have a chat with you today. Hi, Kayleen. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And also, I need to welcome Paul Nathaniel. Hi, Paul. Lovely to have a chat with you again so soon. Hi, Kayleen. Thanks very much. Nice to be back in Australia. I first interviewed Paul Nathaniel in 2022 at the CRC Care International Cleanup Conference in Adelaide, South Australia. And you can hear his full interview with me in episode 37. And this is how he introduced himself during that interview. I live in Nottingham in, uh, in England, the home of Robin Hood. And where are you from? I run my own company called LQM. We're 25 years old this year. And what does LQM stand for? It stands for Land Quality Management. It's based in England, but we work all around the world. What does your company do? Uh, we're specialists in contaminated land management. We do high-level consultancy. We write a lot of technical guidance. We developed the biggest set of soil screening levels that are used in the UK. I helped write the international standard on sustainable remediation. We run training courses. We write books. And occasionally we go to conferences in far-flung places like Adelaide. Paul, why don't you quickly just say what you both have been doing at the CRC Care Masterclass? So we've been here for the whole week. The CRC Care Masterclass has been running Monday to Friday in uh, Newcastle, New South Wales. 
and we've been providing the delegates on the course with an overview of contaminated land management with policy, legislation, site investigation, risk assessment and remediation. And we must point out that it has not just been an exclusive PFAS. No, 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 this covers everything. Asbestos, hydrocarbons, chlorinated solvents, with a flavouring of PFAS. Scott, could you just please introduce yourself to the audience? We haven't spoken before. You're from California. Yes, I'm from uh, California, born and raised in Southern California, Los Angeles area, but have been living in the San Francisco area for the past 30 plus years. You are a hydrogeologist. Could you just tell people what that is? I'm a geologist first and foremost, and a hydrogeologist has my education and specialty has been on studying and assessing groundwater conditions, contaminant, the flow, the occurrence, since I was in graduate school back in the mid-1980s. Okay, so how many years is that? That's Oh, you're going to remind me of how many years that is. 40 years. Uh, think of it as as long as Superfund has been around, I've been practicing in this field. Very interesting. And in Newcastle in particular, in Australia, you have been working with the Global Centre for Environmental Remediation at the University of Newcastle, and you've been researching the effect of climate influence on groundwater contaminant mitigation technologies. That's yeah. a mouthful. That Could you just mouthful. break that down? for us and tell us simply what that means. Sure. Well, first of all, I have this wonderful opportunity with the Global Center for Environmental Remediation, as you mentioned, or GSER for short, and Professor Ravi Naidu, who I first met at CRC CARES Cleanup Conference back in 2011 in Adelaide, when uh, he invited me to come and speak on a particular remediation technology that uh, I had been working with since the mid-1990s, this thing called a permeable reactive barrier. Professor Ravi Nadu is the Global Innovation Chair and Director of GCER, G-C-E-R. He's also the Managing Director and CEO of the Cooperative Research Centre for Contamination Assessment and Remediation of the Environment, known as CRC CARE. The Global Centre for Environmental Remediation, GSER, aims to safeguard people's social, economic and physical health and well-being by developing innovative, cost-effective and sustainable technologies and solutions that reduce the impact of pollutants on the environment. GSER is a leading proponent of risk-based approaches to the clean-up or management of contaminated sites. Risk-based remediation is based on the premise that contaminants only pose a risk if they can be taken up by and cause harm to humans, animals, plants and other biota. Therefore, GSER is leading a more rational, effective and affordable approach to contamination science and actual cleanup, which has been adopted in Australia and worldwide. In CRC Care State, it is estimated that the nation spends over two billion Australian dollars a year cleaning up contaminated land and water. At the same time, areas of potentially high-value urban land lie unused. CRC Care have almost 20 years of unparalleled expertise in developing solutions to challenging contamination issues relating to soil, water and air. In addition to its substantial research program, CRC Care also plays a key role in training and educating students, consultants and end users in the field of environmental risk and remediation. And that's how I first got to know the centre and, and Ravi's program and him. And we've been in touch and contact and have worked together over the past decade 
decade. And an opportunity came up to take that a bit further in terms of research and my own interest and actually start a doctoral program with him, kind of a latent career research program a few years back in trying to understand should our remediation approaches and technologies adjust or be modified for conditions of climate change and climate evolution and the influence that we're seeing in terms of climate in our groundwater systems. Are you talking about the current climate change that we're seeing? Well, of course, I look at it as a continuum. Climate has an influence regardless. Uh, seasonally, year-to-year changes, extremes that occur in extreme rain or drought, etc. But even with this continuing change that the research scientists who work in that field are, are looking at, we still have conditions in our environment that shift the direction that groundwater flows, for example, that are affecting sea level conditions along coastlines. And those conditions, I'm interested in seeing how to take account for those in our remediation systems. How should they be adjusted? How can they be built to be robust, to be durable, to be sustainable as those conditions continue to push forward and and change? Is this new research or is anybody else doing it? It's perhaps continuing research, but with a more directed focus. I think folks in the natural resources have looked at climate for many years. The mining industry, others, you know, how do rains affect their containment structures, say, for tailings piles, right? But what I'm trying to do is take what we do in terms of groundwater and and soil remediation, which is a different focus of the science, and try to uh, assess how a change in water level affects, say, a bioremediation system, for example, and make sure those can still function and perform as to their intended purpose, even when those conditions change. Excellent. And why does it matter? Well, it's about performance and, of course, risk management and protection. And what we've seen over the last 40 years is that completing a remediation of a site, if remediation is necessary, removing all the molecules or all the risk, is sometimes a long-term process. It's not immediate. And so these systems sometimes have to last. The decision to put in a bioremediation system that might have to be in existence for many years. Right. And that's why conditions change. The system is still there. Will it still perform as a condition changes? Scott, you were the lead author on the paper that was recently published in Wiley Journal in March 2023. And Paul, you also contributed to this paper and Ravi Nadu as well as a couple of other co-authors who are not here today. This paper is called Climate Influenced Hydrobiogeochemistry and Groundwater Remedy Design, a Review. So Let's just discuss a couple of the key points because it's a very technical paper, I must say. Paul, what did you contribute to the paper? And this also did look at PFAS near the end, didn't it? Did. What did you contribute to the paper? What do you think were the key points? So this is a paper that's coming out of Scott's doctoral research. The other co-authors are part of the supervisory team of that research. I think what I contributed was an understanding of how climate change and extreme weather events are influencing both the way contaminants behave, uh, how the environment changes and how that influences either the design or the implementation of different types of remediation technologies, particularly technologies that look to interrupt the pathway. So long-term pathway interruption rather than short-term source removal. Mm. Are we talking in situ? We're, We're talking in situ. So ex situ involves removing the soil or the water, which manages the risk and then you've got stuff above ground that you need to deal with so ex situ is a um, a once-off done and dusted type of solution so it's not affected by these climate change changes in the environment no because you're doing it today 
as a snapshot in time if yeah. you're unfortunate and during the excavation or during the abstraction you have a, a storm or a really dry period or a wildfire well yes the extreme weather events will influence you but long-term climate change over the next few decades is avoided because you've done it today right what stood out to you in the paper and then i'll pass back to scott for his thoughts so more broadly in terms of how climate change and extreme weather events influence remediation it's an understanding that the design of different remediation techniques needs to be able to accommodate changes in groundwater flow speed or direction changes in atmospheric pressure that will influence how gases or fluids behave so that your remediation continues to be effective over a period of 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And how do you relate the things that you just said when we bring PFAS into the picture as the contaminant? Do you think the systems that are being designed, tested in the field now have taken this into account? In terms of design, what we're seeing in the UK is that we're beginning to see people seriously take on board the knowledge that extreme weather events will happen. So wetter wets, colder colds, hotter hots, winds and wildfires. They are increasingly being reflected in the choices and the design of remediation techniques. But they weren't in the past. So we've got currently operating remediation solutions that were designed without looking at how things like that would affect them. Yeah, because we didn't have as many of these extreme weather events like Lismore in Australia. We have places that flooded there that have never flooded before. So this is the type of stuff you're talking about. The changes in hydrogeology, floodwaters, places that are flooding that never flooded before. Or didn't flood as frequently. Is that all you want to add about that paper? That's fine. It's Scott's primary work. It's his story to tell. So Scott, you said the key point in your abstract, you said this, the concept of remedy design, resilience and durability within an envelope of climate change and anthropogenic influence has been discussed in some technical circles as a component of sustainable remediation. So what I want to focus on there is the term sustainable remediation. That word is being used a lot right now when it comes to PFAS. I was just at ELGA last week and again today we've spoken about that. When you wrote this paper, what are you meaning by that key point in relation to sustainable remediation? Right, and a good question and you're correct. Sustainability has been used. It means perhaps different things to different people, you know, depending on their, their practice. But I think this is a continuum of the evolution of remediation design over the past several decades. We recognize that some active remedies, not the immediate excavation and removal, but say a groundwater abstraction and treatment at the surface. So removing that water using pumps, for example, wells with pumps in them, and then trying to treat that water once it's out of the ground. The challenges, many of the challenges that we found were that pump and treat, while it provided sometimes a protection that stopped the water flow or the contaminant flow from a receptor, was not necessarily all that good at completing the job of removing all the molecules. Yeah, Yeah. especially when it comes to PFAS, right? Uh, PFAS and many other contaminants, chlorinated solvents, et cetera, you know, the dense other types of uh, molecules and contaminants. PFAS is somewhat mobile and maybe some would say that removing the water, creating a hydraulic capture would be the term, pulling it out, can stop the flow in the right cases. But the movement to sustainability in many ways came out of the movement to try and have a more resource conservative approach. 
less energy going into that remedial design, less wasted water pumping out water, for example, that can't be used again in terms of remedial design. So we looked at sustainable methods, those where we can change the chemistry, stop the flow using a sorbent that we've installed or implemented into the ground across that path of the plume. And so the sustainability world and the concept really took that on. And it makes sense, right? We all want to be resource conservative. There are better ways than throwing all kinds of energy sometimes into a remedy. And so that's where a lot of this has come from. In that paper, and one of my interests is in two fronts, the hydraulic issues, groundwater changes as climate changes, right? The flow directions and levels of groundwater, but also the chemistry and the biology. Because many of our remedies, whether we're looking at PFAS or one of its many cousins or another conventional contaminant, is also about changing the chemistry so that it's less toxic, perhaps less mobile, a different form that is less harmful. Are you talking about additives in in the remediation methods? Additives may be used, but those additives have to work under a certain condition. Level of oxygen, say dissolved oxygen in groundwater or certain pH condition. The interest is if climate changes those conditions, maybe seawater is coming into a groundwater system. So there's a higher level of salinity. How does that change that reaction where we wanted that reaction to actually break down a chemical? So what did you find that stood out to you as a key conclusion? key conclusion is that there's a lot of research that looks at the individual components of chemistry and biology, but for different reasons. There are papers that look at the additional erosion off of a land slope that puts more sediment into a waterway. Well, that sediment causes a change in chemistry, but it has nothing to do with remediation, right? It has nothing to do with the chemical reactions we're trying to get to. What I was able to do is see that there's a lot of these components, but they haven't been put together with the focus being the reactions we need for remediation, where we're trying to destroy a chemical or stop a chemical. So is this like a first paper, there needs to be more research? Yeah, this is only one step and we're going forward. And the next step is to take some of the lessons learned from existing projects we've worked on. I've worked on a project right now that I would call sustainable, a permeable reactive barrier system that's been in the ground for three decades that still appears to be functioning correctly, and or at least the way we wanted to. We didn't call it sustainable at the time, but we did have some design elements in it to adjust for changes in water direction. Other examples as well to try and look at longer term data sets to see how the chemistry or biology has changed over time and learn from that and see if we can take those lessons and apply them to our remedial approaches. Remedial approaches, which we may need for PFAS or other constituents, right? Because chemistry is still very important as we continue to learn more about the whole family of PFAS chemicals. And I'll put a link to the paper that we've just discussed in the Wiley Journal in today's show notes. And just before we finish on this, I was just going to ask, when you think about PFAS and all the new remediation technologies that are being developed right now, there's a bit of a race on, I think, with remediation tech. Rightly so. People have spent a lot on R&D of these methods and put the time in, and now they're developing and taking them to scale. Do you think there will be any kind of interrogation of these remediation methods to see if they are sustainable? Do you think anybody's going to do that? Do you plan on doing that as part of your research? to look at the methods that are coming out now, 
like foam fractionation, all of those sorts of methods? Well, I, I would answer it this way, that part of our job as consultants is to, if you will, interrogate the different remedies that are out there. Investigate, interrogate's a strong word, but it's to assess them for their performance under what conditions they are useful for. You know, a lot of these technologies that you just mentioned are for the contaminated media, water, soil in some cases, that have already been taken out of the ground, right? They're being treated above ground. What I'm looking at in my current research work is what do you do below ground, in the groundwater itself, before we've taken it out? So there are different types of risk management approaches to try and handle that risk. And I think Paul has worked quite a bit in looking at many of these technologies and their effectiveness and are they sustainable? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I think I'll hand this to Paul, but I would add maybe one item to go with that is that our maybe our first look is about will it work? It is, isn't it, at the moment? Will it work? And then nobody knows if the systems will even last five years, 10 years, 20 years. We, we don't know because they're new. The timeline is something that, of course, has to be matched to the objective, right? And what is the problem we're trying to solve? It may have to last for 20 years or it may have to change. If conditions change, for example, or if we've seen that there's a change in the amount of material that we have to treat or the location. So, Paul, Scott said that you have looked at a lot of these remediation methods for PFAS. Have you done a, a review of methods? So I'm currently writing the UK guidance on PFAS in soil and water with colleagues Ian Ross from CDM Smith, Geraint Williams from ALS and Judith Nathaniel from LQM. I'd just like to go back to what sustainable remediation is. Yes, please. So last year, Standards Australia adopted an ISO, an international standard, on sustainable remediation. So there is now an Australian standard, 18504 dated 2022. And the concept of sustainable remediation in that standard is site-specific. So you can't really talk about a technology being sustainable. It has to be the solution for that particular site's problem is the sustainable option. And that involves looking at the environmental impact of the remediation, the economics of it, and the social acceptability of that remediation technology. Yes, which is one of the things that today's been all about in the teaching. Correct. And also to break that down even more simply, I think you said it needs to be cheap and green and popular. So the three words I used were cheaper, which ends in ER, greener, which ends in ER, and popular, which I'm spelling as ER just to make it alliterative. But can you just quickly say what you mean by that? Because you're not meaning just the cheapest option, even if it's a dud no it has to work so at the end of a risk assessment you realize there is a problem the risk needs to be managed the next stage is to identify solutions that would manage that risk you might end up with a short list of three or four and then you've got to choose one of those three or four all of which would do the job and you're going to choose one of them to actually implement on your site and the popular bit, is it popular with the people that are paying for the remediation? No. Or popular with community? It's popular with the people living around the site who will be affected by the remediation. It might be the timescale. It might be the air emissions, the nuisance that might be caused. It might be the traffic movements if you're moving stuff off site. But it's really about how the neighbours of the site feel about and view what is being proposed by means of remediation. Yeah. Yes, I understand because in the early days, 
that in Australia, when I went to the inquiries, the community were always concerned about what remediation they were going to put in place. Would they be adding another chemical to get rid of a chemical, for instance? That's a very basic. That was one of their fears, that other chemicals would be put into the ground to destroy PFAS or remove PFAS. That's what you mean, don't you? It needs to be popular with the community. It needs to be something that's not going to cause more harm. It's something that's not going to cause more upset and more anxiety but it might be an upside as well it might be an option that creates more local jobs it might be an option that creates more local education opportunities and so on so there's a range of social impacts or social consequences of different remediation technology okay and just before we hand back to scott you've come to australia again you were here last year for cleanup you've come back to australia to the crc care Masterclass, and you were also at elga last week so last week in sydney alga organized three days of events around PFAS and I was uh, able to take part in all three of those. What was your takeaway from how Australia's dealing with PFAS, if you wish to say? Australia's been at the forefront of looking at and managing the risks from PFAS contamination, particularly in groundwater. A lot of expertise has been acquired over the last five, ten years. A lot of really good analytical capabilities by the laboratories in Australia. So there's a lot of technical expertise and a lot of lessons to be learned by the rest of the world in terms of how some of the PFAS impacted sites are being managed. We are at a stage where the remediation technologies we have available are the ones that will remove the contaminant from the ground or immobilize it so it can't move. Those are quite mature. The ones that look to destroy the PFAS molecules, particularly the carbon-fluorine bond, those are still in the process of becoming mainstream. And Australia has been trialling a number of these techniques on on different sites around the country. You mentioned foam fractionation earlier. That's proving to be a very effective means of taking the PFAS out of water and concentrating it. So you might start off with a million litres of water with very low levels of PFAS in it by putting it through a foam fractionation unit designed and built in Australia and New South Wales. Then you might end up with a volume of one litre. So a one million fold reduction in the volume of whatever it is you then need to treat. You might need to send it away to incineration, for example, to destroy the PFAS molecule. And if you're interested in hearing more about foam fractionation, you can listen to the previous episode, episode 43, where I discuss Epoch Enviro's SAF technology. When you were talking about risk assessment today, you were teaching on quantitative risk assessment and you said today that Australia is still in diapers about quantitative risk assessment but we're not unique in that. Yeah, let me explain what I mean by that. So the way quantitative risk assessment works anywhere in the world, you have screening levels that are concentrations of contaminants in soil that if your site is below, doesn't exceed them, then you don't have a problem. The risks are tolerable, minimal. I use those words in a technical sense. If you exceed those soil screening levels, then that is a trigger to do more detailed investigation, to look at the bioavailability of the contaminant, to do site-specific plant uptake studies, and so on. And that's called detailed quantitative risk assessment. What do you mean, we're still in diapers? Uh, Still taking baby steps. Okay. So it's a question of 
Doing a detailed quantitative risk assessment requires more detailed site investigation, more specific, more sophisticated tests, and unpacking some of the conservatism that's built into the generic assessment criteria so that they can be used anywhere across a, a jurisdiction, across a country. To be clear, we're not just talking in this context about PFAS. No, no, and I'm also not specifically talking about Australia either. Yes, but it's something that we could do better. You could do better, but then that's true of many other countries as well. But for PFAS, are we doing best practice? Australia has very sophisticated and mature guidance on how to deal with PFAS. So you're currently consulting, or you finished the consultation on the third edition of the NEMP. Yeah, the NEMP. The fact that it's on its third edition in just a few short years just is tribute to the way Australia is facing up to this and keeping up with developments in technology and science and chemistry and toxicology. And if you would like to know more about the Australian NEMP version 3.0, you can listen to my interview with Dr. Sean Thomas, who is a principal advisor for wastewater in the South Australian EPA. Sean is involved in the National Chemicals Working Group, which works under HEPA and works on the NEMP. And his main interest in PFAS is in biosolids. Okay, great. And the reason that you and Scott are here this week was to train up and teach the people that are down there doing the work at ground level. Was that right? Correct. It was a course aimed at providing particularly early career consultants, regulators, landowners with skills and knowledge in risk-based contaminated land management. You spoke today about a social license to operate refers to the level of acceptance or approval by local communities and stakeholders of organisations and their operations. And you talked today about how it's not something you can apply for, but you can certainly lose it. Do you like to briefly explain your definition of social licence to operate and why it matters when we come to contaminated land, especially PFAS? So if I've got a contaminated site and I want to remediate it, I need to make sure that what I'm going to do is legally okay, legally permissible. I need to make sure that it's affordable. And I need to make sure that the people who will have to live with either the process or the outcomes are comfortable with it. And it's that last bit which I call and is referred to as the social license to operate. It's that the community who are going to live next to or on the site that's being remediated are comfortable with the process and the outcomes. Can I comment? Pollen made a comment which I agree with about the maturity of some aspects of the remediation technologies. In other words, the ability to stop, you know, or immobilize the constituent or treat it in a certain way. I think one of the areas that we're still developing maturity or in need of developing maturity is how these compounds react on their own in the environment. And you're not just talking about Australia here, you're talking worldwide. Worldwide. Yeah. And obviously Australia is a big part of that, and a lot of that research is happening here. And this is something that takes time for any new chemical that we're having to deal with. How does it actually behave in the environment? And part of that is, how does it react when it's in a certain media, for example, a certain type of soil or a certain type of chemistry? Because what we also learn from that is then how it may behave if we apply a certain remediation technology. Is there there a chance of unintended consequences if we apply the wrong technology or we apply a technology that's incomplete. Can we accidentally, because no one wants to do this, unintentionally create a transformation product that is more challenging to deal with? 
It's more mobile, it has a different risk component, et cetera. And I think that's part of the almost history of all the contaminants that we've ever had to deal with, is to understand that. Because what we don't want to do is go and try and apply something that sounds good or looks good in a certain situation, but maybe it's not the one we want to use. Yes. And I think that's where the research is continuing. Certainly, there are a lot of very smart people in Australia and globally who are looking into that. And and that's what I expect us to be able to develop in the coming years. It's been rapid, hasn't it, the development of tech? It's been rapid, and it will continue to be rapid. And you can probably watch that curve exponentially get higher and higher because uh, we see that that's on everyone's mind, on regulators, on the public, on the technical profession. And because you are from America, I have to ask you, what do you think about the proposed changes that the US EPA are intending to make? And I've put that into my episode 42 of the podcast. I can tell you that there are a lot of eyes and minds on this and and what it actually means. And without using this to go into, is it right? Is it correct? Should it be adjusted? What have you? You know, when a new regulation comes into play, it causes a lot of action. And often that action is you don't know where you're going to go with it because a lot of people have to look at it and make decisions on how they're going to react. There often is a time lapse, right? A new law comes in. How do we deal with this, right? And there's a lot of that discussion happening right now at all levels. Do you think they're making the right decision? Well, I think right decision or wrong decision. We all probably have some opinions at some level, right? And I believe that it may have been when we were doing our course that there was a public meeting. Fourth of May. There we go. That's today back home, right, essentially this morning. I think the transcription will be available today. And so a lot of opinions about that. And those folks that are going to be having to deal with this kind of come from all different walks of industry, municipality, water supply, waste management, of course, the public. And we've seen this before. We've seen this for different standards that have been changed for arsenic, for perchlorate, for a whole host of different things. And we have to react and respond. It doesn't mean that changes won't occur again in the future because there have been changes. Some standards that have been reduced at one time in history then are changed later in the future. Yeah, but your history with Superfund, you know the impacts if they make two chemicals hazardous. It's going to have a very large impact on what we do, not only from the technical perspective, but from the legal perspective, from the management and from the communication perspective, right? So I anticipate, you know, later this year, as we get closer to when these new rules come to play, if they are adopted at that level, we will see a lot of activity. Maybe one quick comment that I think is still appropriate for us to mention is that regardless of these rules that come in and the standards and our ability to work with them, it still will come down to risk management decision-making and assessment. We have conditions and places where in the public record for a water supply, you can see that there are certain contaminants in that water supply, right? But we're still managing ourselves because we've looked at that risk profile and what that means. Generally speaking, the same process occurs, but of course, this is a a different animal, you know, looking at this both in terms of the constituents and, and the levels. So there still is work and there's still assessment. And our work still is to understand and help our clients when we're working for clients and the public for working with them and others to make the decisions that are appropriate. Okay, excellent. The US EPA has based a lot of their decisions on a study by Philip Grandian. I've heard this talked about for five years and this example has been brought up. And it seems to me like some people, when they bring it up, they they're saying it's not a good example of toxicological effects. Now, I know you're not a toxicologist, so I'm not asking you from that point of view, but you mentioned the Faroe Island study today in your training. I wondered if you wanted to expand on 
what you said in the room today on that study in context. The European Food Standards Agency, EFSA, produced a statement on PFAS in food in Europe, and they came up with a tolerable weekly intake for four substances, PFOS, PFOA, PFHXS, the six carbon, and PFNA. And the UK Committee of Toxicity that provides advice to government on toxicology produced an opinion on that EFSA value last autumn, last fall. Their conclusion is that the Grandjean study is a poor study in terms of giving us insights into the effects of consuming particular types of food and getting exposure to PFAS. They also were uncomfortable with the way that the data had been modelled, the way that a point of departure had been established, but they concluded that they had nothing better to offer. So the view of the EFSA-based tolerable weekly intake in the UK is that it is a very, very low value, that if you don't exceed, you clearly do not have a problem. But if your predicted exposure exceeds that tolerable weekly intake, then that really is definitely a trigger for looking at not only at the exposure side, but also at the toxicology. But I think you were talking about the immune effects in diphtheria, and we don't see an increase in diphtheria. Let me explain, therefore, what some of the Committee of Toxicity's concerns were. The effects that the Grandjean study and there's another one from Germany, identified were a suppression of the effects of vaccines for a couple of diseases. Tetanus and diphtheria. Correct. And the issue is whether suppressing the effects of a vaccine is a valid adverse harm to human health. Because the COT commented that diphtheria and tetanus, well, certainly diphtheria, is a very rare disease and we're not seeing an increase in the incidence of the disease. But the issue with the Faroe Islands study is that the dietary exposure was not only to PFAS, but also to things like PCBs and dioxins, which may also have had their own impact. We won't get into toxicology any further. Now, I must clarify that the US EPA took into account a lot more than just one study in their proposal to institute national primary drinking water regulations for a few PFAS. And you can hear a lot more detail in episode 42 of this podcast regarding the US EPA proposed changes and why they are making these proposed changes. Somebody spoke about monitoring, I think it was you, Scott. When remediation experts are designing solutions for remediation, this is my question, how important is the need to design and plan an adequate monitoring strategy that will hold up now and in the future. You're asking, should our monitoring program really match with the technology? Should it be considered? Absolutely. It's, you know, maybe no different than your own automobile, your own car. Without the knowledge of the data that comes in, how much oil you still have in the car, your gasoline levels, etc., the maintenance is much more challenging. You're guessing. And I remember my dad's old Volkswagen Beetle. It didn't have a gas gauge. It didn't know fuel gauge. You had to know how many miles you went, and then hopefully you were right and not stuck on the interstate someplace, right? Monitoring is crucial because just like anything, for a, um, a method to work appropriately, we know they change. They're not perfect, right? They're going to age. They're going to weather. And the climate conditions. Climate is going to change. Chemistry is going to change. And these remedies, many of them are based on chemistry and the physics of water flow. So keeping track of that and using our science, we are scientists, right? We're educated to look at this and anticipating changes and trends 
in such a way that we can make adjustments, make the performance meet the risk objectives that they're there for. Who needs to monitor them? Who needs to monitor them? Mm. Well, certainly the designers can monitor them, the consultants. Government may be monitoring, sometimes the public. One of the messages that we want to get out there is that that technology is improving as well. There are better methods today and more being developed that are almost like being a doctor in the sense that we can look at the system, the systemic changes that are occurring and project the future such that if an adjustment needs to be made, we can think about that. Now, not all remedies have that ability to be adjusted, but with enough of these sites and enough of this monitoring, our designs can be adjusted before we implement, Yes. right? What I'm talking about is actual, say, sensors that are being developed that we can grab data remotely, data that goes to the cloud. Remote sensing is terrific. Remote capturing of sensors that are gathering information from the ground, the water. Alarms might work in some cases as well. But the point is that that data is much more available to us and more technologies are being developed that are reliable. And from that, we can make better decisions because we're gathering more information. We can integrate it, interpret it and make hopefully good decisions to make sure that risk management approach is going to be successful. Great. And that's going to help the sustainable remediation. Very very much so. I want to know your feedback on this week with the students, how you both felt about the week and what are the standouts to you at the CRC Care Masterclass? I really enjoy this week in many ways. Not only is it a chance to, well, The teacher always needs to do a little studying themselves right before they present. So it gives that opportunity. But we had an enthusiastic group, a a global group from not just Australia, but other parts of the world too. Yeah, I think Malaysia and other places. Malaysia, South Africa, I believe as well. And what I enjoy doing in this, speaking for myself, is I also learn. I learn a lot by listening to our participants, to our delegates, those who are there to learn. Our students were from all different levels of experience and different organizations. Such as? First year uh, practitioners to those who have been working for several decades. Uh, Students who were from consulting firms, students who represented government agencies, Mm -hmm. uh, students who were in the academic field. And, And that breadth of experience and knowledge and understanding is really helpful because what one of the exercises or several exercises we also did, uh, thanks to Paul's creation, really, is exercises of community, of, of role-playing, of being wearing the shoe of somebody that you're having to talk to about risk communication or sell a technology or uh, assess how it's working, yeah. be in the landowner, for example, when you're actually a consultant. But also, we went through many aspects of the fundamentals. Yeah. Quickly, there's more to learn. You can't learn 30 years of knowledge in half a fortnight. And communication can be very tricky because you do need to be able to see the issue from a different perspective, correct? Correct. Scientists, I can't say, are probably the best at communicating to the public. And just in general, by their nature, we're good at numbers. We talk to numbers. We talk to models. But our job is a very social job. It's a very public job. We need to communicate our knowledge of conditions to a community who haven't had this as their background. And today I've come away understanding the perspective of the people that work in this space and how difficult it is to communicate with communities that are affected by contamination. And I've come away with that perspective, which I didn't have 
prior. Well, then that's a, we feel success. Paul, what's your takeaways on this week or what have you really enjoyed about this week? So takeaway, I really enjoyed going to the Hunter Wetlands yesterday afternoon. I think what I really enjoyed most was this particular group of delegates have been very willing to ask questions to come along at coffee break or lunch times and ask us things about particular sites they're working on, particular challenges they've got. And that indicates a degree of trust for them to open up. And it's a real privilege to be given the chance to ask questions and probe a bit and then provide hopefully some useful advice. And that's what's made it really worthwhile for me. Excellent. Scott, just want to touch on that survey that you did, but I don't know if that's public yet. You showed some preliminary survey results. Is that right? The survey's ongoing? Sure. An intent of mine was to actually ask the community of practitioners, academics, regulators globally as part of some of the work I'm doing with the university here, as well as professional information on their opinions about certain aspects of the remediation practice, uses, history, looking forward. For all contaminants, not just PFAS. We just clarify that again. That's correct. It was pretty wide open, right? And what I showed at the end of the workshop this week were just some preliminary results because I haven't even had a chance to digest myself, but I did ask the delegates to participate if they so chose. And so I was interested in their feelings on where have we come within this practice? What has been a success? What do we still need to find out more of? What other tools do we need? What has been successful? What hasn't? Where do we get our information on new technologies and approaches, for example, right? That in itself is also of interest. It's not public. It's not done yet, right? But the goal is to analyze this information and make it available for folks because I think it's informative for us in the practice as well. And I'll put a link to the survey that Scott Warner just spoke about in today's show notes in case anybody would like to participate in his survey. At the last slide, you showed PFAS terms, PFAS words, and you said, I think you said something about what's missing or what's left out. So the question that I had asked is, what do we still need in our practice? It was an open question. And the response that came in really captured, we need more knowledge about how to mitigate issues surrounding PFAS. So what are we missing in the remediation world while all the attention is on PFAS? That's probably going to be my last question. Do you think there's too much emphasis on PFAS? I'm not sure if I would say too much. I would say that it is gathering a lot of our collective attention. Rightfully so. Yes. It's a major item. Yeah. We're not minimizing it. No, 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 no. While all this attention is on PFAS, what are the ramifications on the other contaminants in our world? I think what we have to be careful of, and this is what I've heard from some delegates here, but also in the past, you know, over the past few years, and the question I've asked them is, do you have enough resource in your organization, whether that's a regulator or otherwise, to still work on these other issues that we're still handling, other legacy contaminants, climate matters, uh, sea level change and waste management, et cetera. And you could see that there's some question that comes on people's faces about that. I mean, there is a lot to learn. We're learning something new every single day, every single moment, perhaps. Are you talking learning something new about PFAS? Right. It is taking attention in many ways, but that doesn't mean that our job with these other matters is over. No. Right. And so I think that will be our continued challenge is we need to continue to work on all these issues. Yes. Not miss, of course, what we need to do with PFAS and related, but also stay on top of the things that we've been working on for the past many decades. 
things that you know work well, you know, but then PFAS can complicate the result. It's a continued challenge. Do you think we need to focus on some other contaminants as much as we're focusing on PFAS, Paul? I think the real superheroes in all this are the analytical laboratories who are able to test down to really, really low concentrations. And if you can't test for something, you can't do a risk assessment, you can't remediate it. Where that effort is now turning is things like pharmaceuticals for humans or animals, personal care products, spreading of biosolids onto land. So we're beginning to see a realization, so psychoactive substances, we're beginning to be able to test down to levels that will help us understand whether there's an issue with some of those things or not. And you're not just talking about PFAS here? No, no, no. This is the other substances you were asking about. Other substances, okay, yeah. Once we've identified whether and which of those other substances are a potential threat, then there'll be a need to develop uh, risk management and and remediation technologies to, to deal with them as well. There's always so much to talk about with remediation, PFAS in particular, of course. Okay, any last thoughts? Any last comments? Last thoughts. I agree with Paul about the analytical chemistry is so, so important. And so is the research. And we need to continue that. And I guess my last word is the funding for these programs, the folks that are actually in the trenches doing the work, trying to understand this. I hope it continues. I know there is a lot of money out there. We heard that at the ALGA program last week as well. However, it has to continue. And it has to continue in the right way. But we need that research to continue and that research to lead into practical and pragmatic options and alternatives for us. And so that's my message is I hope that continues. Research in remediation methods or research in health toxicology? All of the above. Characterization, analytical technologies, toxicology, the remediation technologies, the risk management approaches. It, It all needs to continue because... We're, we're there to provide a value, which is a protection value and an understanding of the conditions. And, and that yes. takes effort, work, et cetera. Excellent. Thank you for being a guest in the podcast today, Scott, after a very long week and a very long day. So appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Kayleen. Uh, amazing. Thank you for what you've shared today. Paul, any last words on PFAS? I think that the biggest advance I'm looking forward to is the mainstreaming of high-resolution mass spectrometry to look at the uh, substances that we cannot target. The dark matter. The dark matter that we get an insight into with total organic fluorine and the top assay. But HRMS will begin to give us the ability to identify some of these things that we cannot do targeted analysis because we don't have the standards for the mass spec type of approaches to resolve for us. And I think that that will be a really big breakthrough in understanding and characterizing sites. What will that enable you to do? It'll allow me to to give a name to identify more and more of the individual substances within what we refer to as dark matter. But in the dark matter, it's all PFAS, right? I'm referring only to PFAS at the moment, yeah. Will it allow you to treat more of it or remediate more of it? It will allow us to understand whether or not these are posing a risk that needs remediation. And it will allow us to see whether remediation has removed them from the ground, removed them from the water or destroyed them post-remediation. Okay. 
Well, excellent. I already got so much more in my episode with you, Paul, and I will refer people to that as well. Thank you for being a guest in the Talking PFAS podcast again. Thank you very much. I'm sure you won't be back in Australia anytime soon, will you? Not until October of this year. It's when EcoForum takes place in Melbourne. I'll probably see you there. Look forward to it. Will you be there, Scott? I am planning on it right now. I'll, I'll be heading back to California in June, but back here in uh, September and in October for work both at the uni and at EcoForum. And I still have to do my professional work with the firm BBJ Group that I'm working with. And they are an environmental remediation company? Environmental consultancy, that's correct, in the U.S., but working globally as I've done throughout my practice. You've been here since January, I believe. I've been here since January. It's been fantastic. Newcastle is a wonderful place to be. But my wife is here with me, and we've enjoyed being part of the community here during our stay. Anyway, thank you again. I really appreciate your time. I know you're both very tired, so go and have some dinner. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye. I hope to bring you some information from the Elgar event that I attended at the end of April later in this season. I have some big Australian PFAS news. You might have heard me mention a super class action, which is now being referred to as a multi-site PFAS class action. Well, the applicants in the multi-site PFAS class action, represented by Shine Lawyers, have reached an in-principle agreement with the Commonwealth to settle the multi-site PFAS contamination class action against the Department of Defence. Now, these are residents from seven communities across Bullsbrook, Western Australia, Richmond, New South Wales, Wales, Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, Wodonga, Bandiana, Victoria, Edinburgh, South Australia, Darwin, Northern Territory and Townsville, Queensland. And a Shine Lawyers media release states that those seven communities were set to head to the federal court for the start of a trial, which would examine the Commonwealth's alleged responsibility for the spread of PFAS chemicals from military bases across the country into neighbouring communities, soil and groundwater. Shine lawyers fought to compensate residents living near these military bases after their properties lost value due to contamination caused by these toxic chemicals. And the parties have agreed in principle on an amount of $132.7 million. And the breakup of that amount is yet to be determined, but it could include up to 30,000 people. Shine Lawyers Joint Head of Class Actions, Craig Orsop, said while the news is positive, the outcome is still subject to approval by the federal court. And Shine Lawyers will also continue to pursue compensation for residents of Wreck Bay in the matter of Wreck Bay Aboriginal Community Council and ANOR versus the Commonwealth. And Justice Lee ordered a further mediation in the Wreck Bay proceeding and stood the hearing down until the 29th of May. I hope to bring you more about this super class action in the future in the podcast. And I encourage any of the residents who were involved in this class action and would like to share their PFAS story to please reach out to me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and as usual there are many helpful links for you in the show notes and you will see the full description of show notes if you access the podcast through Omni Studio, my podcast host. If you have not subscribed to the podcast, I encourage you to subscribe so that you will not miss an episode. As always, all information in today's episode is copyright, but please feel free to share the episode via email or social media or wherever you share your podcasts. And please contact me for republishing permissions at talkingpfas at gmail.com.
Thanks again for listening. See you next time.